Hello and welcome to another episode of Tell Great Stories, the podcast that looks back at some of Unbound Theatre's past projects and productions. I'm Lara Pipistral and we're looking at two of our past pantomimes, Alice in Wonderland and Pinocchio. And with us today are... Hello, I'm Dario Knight. I was the writer of both shows and the director of Pinocchio. Hi, I'm Emily. I played Alice in Alice in Wonderland and in Pinocchio I played Mudlark and Broccoli. Hello, I'm Matt, and I played Tweedledee and Pinocchio. Oh, hello, I'm Chris, and in Alice I was the King of Hearts, and then when we did Pinocchio I played the role of Geppetto. Lovely, thank you for joining me. Um, Before we look at the two shows, I just wanted to ask a general panto question. What was each of your first experiences of watching a pantomime, and what was your first experience working on one? Well, Alice was my first experience working on a pantomime, um, which I sort of fell into by accident. Um, So I'd just started attending the drama lessons at the Queen's Park and um, the director of Alice in Wonderland was like, someone's dropped out would you like to join in? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll join in. And he was like, there's two roles up. And I'm like, cool. Walked into the rehearsal and he was like, oh, this is Emily. She's going to be playing Alice. And for a moment I went, Alice. Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) Ah. And I rolled with it and it was great and I never left. So this was, Alice was my first experience in a pantomime. Wow. For me, I actually I, I don't remember myself as a family going to see pantomimes. I'm sure we did, but I, I guess I'm just too old and can't remember anymore. But um, I used to be quite involved with uh, another local theatre in this area called Intring, and uh, for many years I sort of worked backstage on on their pantomimes, starting off working as uh, one of the sort of stagehands, moving stuff around, and then I became stage manager for a set of four pantomimes. And Tring at that time used to have a tradition of doing pantomimes almost in well it was alphabetical order it was a aladdin cinderella dick whittington jack and the beanstalk and then four years later start back at aladdin because the theory was that most young people would have seen the four and have had enough of pantomimes so that was all, all my experience of pantomimes a lot of moving furniture around building sets etc and um, then took a break from pantomimes until one came along queen's park that i went along audition for and uh, got cast and uh, have, haven't looked back since what was that first one you auditioned for? Well, I did um, the uh, one we did before Unbound, which was uh, um, a Dick Whittington pantomime, uh, but it, that wasn't an Unbound version. Then the following year, uh, the first one was... I'm confused now. What was the first one? Beauty and the Beast. Beauty was Beauty, yes. I, was, I thought it was, but yes, first one was Beauty. I can honestly say that I have actually... Until I started, started at Unbound, I had never been to a pantomime. It's got a lot to do with being foreign. I'm South African by birth. And weirdly, yeah, it's just not a thing. It does happen, but it's not the big tradition with a a panto in every village like it is here. So the first time I got involved in panto was when I auditioned for Alice in Wonderland, which was interesting. (laughs) It was quite quite an introduction to the madness that is panto. See, I did, I had... (laughs) As a young young child, I had seen um, 
pantos and I had been to a few my grandparents my nana and Deo would take me because my dad couldn't sit still um so I didn't have many theatre experiences with my parents but with my nana and Deo I did and it was a really special thing for us to go because for them it was quite a lot of money so the one theatre experience we did have was panto so I remember watching Peter Pan and just going wow this is so cool and you know there is that real as a child that magic that you have as a child and panto really encapsulates really gets that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, please cut that bit out Um, and it's such a wonderful thing uh to have a magical time of the year a magical experience yeah oh that's lovely okay so Dario, I mean, Alice has obviously been quite formative for many of the cast members, their first experience of Panto. Um, But it's an iconic story in its own right that many people have read and seen. How did you go about adapting such a recognisable and kind of popular tale? The main thing is to try as best you can to ignore the iconography of it. So stay away from Disney films is is always a good start. I mean, that's easier said than done to ignore the kind of iconic status of it. But if you imagine a copyright lawyer standing over your shoulder as you write it, (laughs) then uh, inspiration soon strikes. Um, I mean, with Alice, I I went away and read both of the books and then tried to try to extrapolate some bits and pieces that I thought were maybe not as often mentioned, like the character of the Duchess, who's the perfect dame, because she's a she's a monster in the book. Um and you don't often see her in some of the film adaptations. That chapter doesn't always find its way into to things uh, you know, sort of when telly shows do a special about Alice in Wonderland, the Duchess in the Pig and the Pepper's never really there. Um and then there's a reference to the Mad Hatter, I think it's in the first book. Uh, having attended one of the Queen of Hearts concerts and his singing was so bad that he murdered time um, which kind of became the heart of our version that was the the plot revolved around the great clock of Wonderland having been broken and Alice has to help find out who broke it and put it back together again so finding something new to bring to it is important really and um, once you've kind of found that it's even better if you can find something that is actually in the book but people don't tend to think of uh, once you've got that you can then build your story around it your version of it and you can put in all the characters that people expect to see like the Cheshire Cat and the White Rabbit um, so yeah the key with Alice I think was to try and make it into a, a single narrative rather than an episodic one which is what happens in the book it's a series of vignettes really it's almost like a series of sketches and the characters don't tend to recur I think they all sort of appear at the end of the first book for the trial but with a panto, you don't want to have to sort of meet the dame and then not meet her again until the end of the play. You need the characters to come and go all the way through. So it was about try- trying to find a plot where all of your characters, like the caterpillar and the, the Cheshire cat and the white rabbit, could recur throughout the whole story rather than just in their own little sealed off section. Derek, I'm just going to ask, because um, I'm, I'm bemused now. Obviously, Lewis Carroll's book is well known. You say a second book. Well, what is the second one? Yeah, so there's um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is the original, and there's Alice Through the Looking Glass is the second book. Oh, And that's right. where um, yes, I'm with you now. Tweedledee and Tweedledum and the Jabberwock all come from. Yeah. Yes, book. sorry, I'm with you. Okay, so I think Alice also had quite a big emphasis on audience interaction. 
So what were your favourite experiences of working with an audience and what are your top tips to performers just starting out doing this kind of theatre? That's like a question to everyone. <laughs> I think the first thing I do is interact with the audience playing Alice. The first thing she does is go down those stairs and interact. And I remember being completely terrified because I was like, I've never done this before. I've never done panto. I've never interacted. I can't control what comes out of the audience's mouth. <laughs> and I remember being really like, oh, but as we went along, I was like, this isn't far off working in a school. Like they will say things to me and I just have to say stuff back. And that's, <laughs> that's normal life really. And it's just about having some slight control. I do remember, I think it was a few shows in, Alice starts off saying she's bored and like jumping down the stairs. And I asked someone what they were doing and they went, well, I'm waiting for you to get on stage. And I was like, well, that's all right. I've got five more steps. I'll be there in a minute. Like, <laughs> and, I went along, cause I'm, and I remember saying it without thinking and then going, oh, there we go. There's my first grumpy person I've dealt with. Um, which isn't too hard when you're playing Alice, who's already quite grumpy. But there's, it didn't take long to fall in love with it. Because you're so there in with the audience. And when you really remember what it's like to watch a panto you kind of get that whole oh yes that's the bit they love as well and you really vibe off them as well so that really helps you perform even if it is at times a little scary and a little like oh you then find the absolute fun in that which is it's just always good yeah yeah I mean I, I certainly I mean my experience of, of audience interaction is years of street theatre which goes a long way towards preparing you but you know you pick up all sorts of all sorts of tips like um you know it it a lot of it is really remembering that you have the power because most people are yeah. absolutely terrified of being singled out and up in front of other people <laughs> and when you assemble them all you know assemble a crowd of of several hundred people all together Nobody wants to stand out. Nobody wants to wants to be singled out, um, and people become very predictable. You know that's why when you tell a group of people to clap, they will almost ninety percent <laughs> of the time they'll just do it. They, people become very compliant, so you can yeah. you can very much you can prepare in advance for about ninety percent of the situations you're going to you're going to face, and the other ten yeah. percent is just playing with it, mm. and you get to. You get to see, you know, somebody will come up with something and you, nine times out of ten, you just go, that's very funny. Wish I'd thought of that. Carrying on with the script, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of audience members probably don't tweet or certainly shouldn't tweet if, if you're doing it properly. The extent to which audience interaction in a pantomime that might feel spontaneous or improvised actually aren't, really. Mm. Um, things like the, the ghost routine, the it's behind you routine or the call and response of the oh no it is oh yes it isn't all the way around um those are very formulaic to the point where you script them and yeah. um performers as you say matt you kind of direct the audience so that they are whilst feeling that they're shouting out being spontaneous actually they're following the script that you've planned um so I'd, improv isn't really the sort of the motor behind a pantomime it's kind of the life jacket it's there in the event of an emergency but actually yes. if it all goes well you don't really need to improvise anything so i mean even you chris having played dame a couple of times there's always that bit of chatting to the 
the man in the front the poor man in the front row who becomes your uh, <laughs> your love interest for two hours um obviously there's a bit of you don't know quite what he's going to say but you have a set of prepared questions that you know you're going to ask and having done it a few times you've got a sort of must have a, a set of responses that you can pull out for certainly the jobs i know is one of your uh well yeah and, and, I mean, one of the things i always look for as well is a chat someone that's um normally got a bit of a, a, a loud shirt or a loud jumper because they're obviously an open character to start with especially if they're with their yeah. family as well because that means they've probably come along to have a laugh and and um, if they can have a laugh in front of their children that makes them look even better you know and we've Christmas around the corner, you know, he's now a lovely dad. So that that's always a good target to pick on, and also, especially if someone backstage knows someone out the front that's um, likely to be good. But, I mean, you wouldn't pick on someone who is going to try and come back at you because then it, it can kill it. And and, and um, they, they would want to take over the show, which is not what you want. So, you know, again, you have to sort of find that sort of person and not go to them. Um but uh, yeah, no, I mean, because obviously with 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 Alice, I, I was playing the King of Hearts, and his first entrance was down for the rake as well, and uh, I, I played it, and 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 Dad let me go of it, pretty much as a sort of bumbling old fool, because you know that that's how it was. The Queen of Hearts was in charge, and he was just a sort of daft old sidekick, so I could just bumble along the whole time anyway, and um, which is quite good. Cause when you get a line, you can just sort of sit there and go blah, 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 <laughs> until you remember until you remember what you got to say. So. Uh, <laughs> Five years later, the secrets come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think there's there's all those all those bits and you know especially when you've got to pick you know because the other moment that always happens in Panto when you pick on someone is the inevitable birthday scene where oh, for yeah. for reasons best known to ourselves we need to have a scene in front of the in front of the curtains. <laughs> um, yeah, and a lot of that again is is just it's. It's in many ways it's easier to pick on someone who's got a group of friends around them because you know they 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 add the peer pressure, um, and but on the other on the other side you do sometimes you somebody says well it's some it, you get a note backstage that it goes it's somebody's birthday you know can you ask for you know Kieran yeah we get requests and Kieran is Kieran is three years old stands there and you can't interact with him and it's it's just difficult and you're you're trying to you're trying everything you've prepared and nothing works i just kind of learn it happens you know mm. a part of the joy of joy of interactions is that yes you can you can prepare but yeah you do sometimes just have to draw a line under it and send them back up and and let it go i think we also we're really lucky with the space we have like when you're on stage you are not that far from an audience member. You're really not. And like, there are times, like, I remember doing something in front of the cloth, and I, it was a bit where it's, I think it is one of my favourite moments of an audience member, was I'm saying my name, because I think Gareth was trying to guess it, and I was like, it's Alice, Alice, and a guy in the front row, literally a foot away from me, went, who the... And I was like, don't you dare. <laughs> be, you could do that, because all it required was me to turn my body and look him in the eye. <laughs> And it was just such a really nice moment because you're just like, you're literally next to them at some point. And I think at one point, Rebecca and I literally just sat in the audience as we watched the ballet. <laughs> I think that was Alice. Yeah, that was Alice. Um, so you have that joy of literally pretty much being with them and you can see them, which I think for some people is really scary. But also you can see them really enjoying themselves and you're like, oh, 
this is great. You get like immediate feedback for what you're doing. <laughs> you're like, they are having fun. I'm having fun. It's fun. I mean, actually, you're saying that, but uh, the interaction with the audience. I mean, Dario, do you specifically write or think uh, when you're doing writing where entrances can come through the audience? Because obviously with Queen's Park, we, we have got that option of having coming down the steps for the audience, which is always a good one, isn't it? I mean, is that something you, you intentionally put in? Yeah, I mean, you try and make sure it happens a couple of times, partly because it's nice, as you, Emily was saying, the, the theatre is so small, it's nice that even if you're in the back row, you can still be part of it and feel like you're mm. you're in, in the middle of it. Those sort of entrances are really handy for uh, if you have got to try and pull focus. It's a bit of misdirection away from the stage, often if you're doing a scene change or something. So they can be very handy for that. Um, or if you have got to go to a front cloth, which is you know not necessarily the most exciting thing to look at, if you've got people in the audience, that's good fun. Um, and it's a great way to start the show, actually, because even though we do it most years, people do get slightly caught unawares, but very excited when the show starts by someone running down the rake, sort of getting ready for the show. It, it's, it adds a bit of uh, excitement to the beginning. So it's, um, yeah, it's something we always try and do deliberately, just because I think it's really, it's just really fun and people don't always expect it. And, and as I say, even the people who might be thinking they've got the duff seats at the back, still suddenly they're involved and there's someone chatting to them at the back. It's um, It's really nice. If it's good enough for the Lion King, Dario, it's good, good enough for us. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I think Alice in Wonderland has got one of my favourite... Um, there's my two favourite panto heckles. One of them is from Alice in Wonderland, and it was when the Jabberwock came out. Because the, so the subplot of the story is um, the Queen of Hearts summons the Jabberwock to try and destroy the king and all the other characters. And um, possibly because we... we we were supposed to have a scary Jabberwock and we decided to go against that in the end. So it was a quite a cute puppet that we had. <laughs> so cute. So the, the audience weren't particularly scared of it. And um, on one night, totally unprompted, no one no one set this up. They All the kids in the audience started shouting in unison, eat the queen, eat the queen. <laughs> <laughs> there was a sort of a moment of just all of a kind of dumbfounded going, oh, where did that come from? <laughs> should have made a scarier jabberwock yeah it was it was meant to be a sort of massive it's a bit like the crocodile in peter pan you want it to be scary because it's the thing even the even the villains frightened of it but um we ended up with a cute one and it was a very good puppet i have to say i ended up doing a tap dance i think oh yeah Uh, because there were there were half a dozen dancers hidden underneath as a sort of chinese dragon but yeah they all, all the kids started shouting my favorite one ever um was the year before we did beauty and the beast and um that starts with a, a stable boy as the kind of Buttons character finding a horse that's run away from the Beast's castle and he's got to hide it. And as a way of warming up the audience, you tend to do some very quick fire jokes. So there are about six or seven horse puns in a row <laughs> just to kind of, you know, get the uh, get the audience warmed up. And during the run, this got extended to about 12 or 13 horse puns. And one night near the end of the run, there was a, a young lad who was sat on the on the gantry at the side of the theatre. And in a moment of silence, never leave a pause in pantomime, it's deadly. But in a moment's <laughs> silence, this kid just said, in the most deadpan voice ever, stop doing horse puns, they're not funny. <laughs> 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 and, uh, to be fair, he had a point. Yeah. But that's, that's my favourite heckle ever, because how on earth do you... <laughs> Do you come back at that one? Well, in Alice in Wonderland, I was still working at a school and some of the kids had actually come to see us and some of the staff members. And there's a bit where I I go to kiss the um, Gareth's character. Nate? The Knave, yeah. 
And like, as I go to do it, one of my kids jumps up because it's very bizarre to see some, see your teaching assistant suddenly doing something else and doing something a bit weird. And like, they jumped up and there was this noise and I was like, right, I need to fall asleep now. Cause normally I'd get a bit close and then fall asleep. But this time I think I'd like lent slightly, saw them jump up and just dropped. And then poor <laughs> Gareth was like, oh, that was oh. quick. <laughs> Cause normally it's like a yawn and then I go. Whereas this time I was like, ah. <laughs> Oh, all fun and games. I think that that kind of is the underscore of what it's all about. Uh, moving on to a, a slightly sort of different view of everything. Um, Emily, you played Alice in the illustrated audiobook of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, as well as in the Panto version. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between like the original depiction of the character and the Panto version of the character? and how you kind of felt playing both of them yeah i think one of the things i love about literature especially classic literature is that it's read by so many people and it's approached by so many people with their own perceptions that the way we interact with literature is our own so having two separate alices is actually quite an easy thing to do because the way i would read alice in the classic book is very different to how someone would interpret it anyway but also there was dramatic differences, even <laughs> just down to the costume. Cause in Panto, the Panto Alice, I had, I was borrowing Christine's new new rock boots, I think they were, but I, they were chunky. And like had a really like, there was a slight edginess to it. And she was a lot, one of her character traits generally, we all agree is that she's a little bit bratty. Um, but Panto Alice just took it really far. And that's really fun because I went in with a really clear character as to who the Alice was supposed to be in that Panto. So you're not approaching it with going, oh, what, what shall I do? You're like, that's what writers are for. We are blessed with them. <laughs> they tell us, they give us enough that we can then play with it, of course. But um it's even things like the voices were different. So when I just did the audiobook version, Alice was very classically, you talk like this, and there was white rabbit. And at no point did I go white rabbit with mine um, in the panto. So it is fascinating that we're able to do that with one character the, in two different things. It's very different. And I love that. And I think that's really cool. Hmm. That sounds like you've got some some really lovely memories to mm. to enjoy there. Um, yeah, and speaking of which, I guess the question to everyone would be, what's your abiding memory of the Alice in Wonderland run? Getting stuck in the first rabbit hole. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Weirdly, I've I've got uh, that that rabbit hole stayed with all of us. <laughs> Just the fact that it. It, it changed from, from being... Was that the one made out of a bin? Yeah, well, I so think that was, was the first one. There was three in total. There were. <laughs> yeah, it was going to be a bin, and then it was going going to be a piece of... Um, then it was... I think it eventually ended up just being a sign that said rabbit hole this way. Yeah. That was the point at which I intervened, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember looking at the bin and going... Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. And I was a lot skinnier back then. And I watched Jessie played the white rabbit go first, and she's physically and body a lot smaller than me and she struggled and I went hmm I'm really not sure but you know you still do it anyway and I remember getting through and going oh this is all right and then my hips hit the middle of the bin and it just that was it and all I could remember was going 
at least I'm not in a dress, at least this isn't the dress run, at least I'm not in a dress, but it required like, I'm pretty sure I blocked it out my memory because there definitely was some wiggling going on and there was definitely some movement that had to happen, but I just don't remember how I got out of it, but I remember getting stuck in it. <laughs> and then the next week we came back and there was a different rabbit hole and I was like, cool, the hole looked bigger. So I was like, that's fine. But there was like a ridge at the bottom. So you had to get your leg over as you ducked and crawled in. So that didn't work. I don't think I ever even made it in. <laughs> that's when I remember Dario going, we can just put a sign up. <laughs> and I remember just being like, oh, thank God. Because I think for me, it was like... Rabbit hole this way, I think. Yeah. I was like, I really don't want to be difficult. This is my first ever thing with everyone. I don't want to be difficult. But I can't get through these rabbit holes. <laughs> Some creative problem solving there. <laughs> I have to say, my, my memory of Alice um, was uh, when we were doing the courtroom scene that uh, I got kissed by a bearded man every night, <laughs> which uh, when I said to people, it, it's not the greatest experience to get kissed by a man with a beard. When someone said to me, well, you've been kissed by a man. It's just a beard that puts you off. This. I said, no, 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 you, you misunderstand me. The, the whole thing of being kissed by a man with a beard is just not a good thing, especially when it's Alice there. <laughs> <laughs> I think he left also... half his makeup on you, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we also had loads of fun backstage as well. Because of the slapstick scene, that was quite a long scene. And I think one of the times <laughs> there was this massive game of Uno because there were only three people on stage and there was like and it was a pretty big cast Alice in Wonderland and we were all in this massive circle playing Uno and there was like I think it was you Chris that bought these things in because there was like an Uno thing that spat out cards (laughs) there was like we had like so many layers to this game of Uno (laughs) that we just did backstage and I just remember feeling like really close with everyone which is a wonderful thing and yeah that games of uno backstage during the slapstick because you could pretty much go right i'm off stage for a good while now that's fine i remember louis the technician used to when it got to that bit came downstairs with a pillow and used to have a lie down in the corridor yeah <laughs> went on, <so> long. <laughs> well i had to go yes. on stage after it and i think that is the smelliest slapstick we've ever done because yeah, there was... was all sorts in that one wasn't there i remember going on stage once and I remember nearly like heaving because I was like, oh God, no. And just being terrified because I was like, oh no. But l-. And I can't remember what my line was, but it definitely was at odds with the smell. <laughs> I think it was like, it was something like, oh look, there's loads of food in here. And I just remember being like, because oh. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously it was like a mess. It, but you know, everyone sort of enjoyed it. But I just remember going on stage and being like, what? What has happened? And I think that was the one they used a can of chili, and I was like, "We're not doing that again. Oh, we cannot have that can of chili." Under the hot lights. Yeah, there was, yeah. There was so in the days before LEDs. Oh. Yeah. Oh, there was there was just so much went went on and in and and on on and off stage. Mm. I mean, I you know apart from yeah, I mean, I as a, as an introduction to Panto, it it was wild. Yeah. Because it started <laughs> yeah. off with, okay, here's some people in funny costumes, and I'll. I'll be part of a double act with with John, who was absolutely fantastic. And then there's just things flying everywhere, and and then you know we're we're trying to get a mushroom on stage, and then off you know, for yeah the the world's <laughs> biggest mushroom for for one scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about 
Is it about six or eight feet wide? I seem to remember. Yeah. Yes. The best it was, we got the mushroom on stage, but we didn't get the the, the cat bed on stage every time, did we? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that is my favourite memory of yeah. um, is, is Doherty the Matterpillar. Oh. Um, yeah, with his line, with his lines cun- cunningly hidden inside inside the mushroom. Yeah, we found it as we were striking it on the last night. He'd hidden them. His so, little tail as he ran down the corridor. It's just this little swish of a tail as it went yeah. along. Well, I remember sitting in the rehearsal in the dressing room, which I used to do a lot. And um, there was usually only me and him in there because everyone was either on the stage or attempting to to move the the scenery. And um, we were sat there one night and I was sort of quite zoned out, but we had that speaker in the corner that does the show relay. So, you know, roughly where we are in the show. And he was sat there reading a paper, which was funny because he had all his extra arms linked together as caterpillars. So every time he turned a page, there was eight arms (laughs) moving the paper. And we were sat there in silence and I suddenly sort of twigged something. I went, wasn't that your cue? And he slowly lowered the newspaper and listened to what was going on in the speaker and then just shouted at the top of his voice, "Fuck!" <laughs> and then, <laughs> you might have to bleep that. And then yeah. <laughs> and sort of threw down the paper, put on this like headdress thing he had, which had his an- his um, antennae on, and then ran down the corridor. But as you said, I mean, it was his costume was a bit like a uh, sleeping bag, so he couldn't really run. He just had to shuffle really quickly, and all the little arms were pumping as he went up there. <laughs> And I was, I mean, I was on the floor. I was, I was laughing my head off. And, um, but he was determined to go on. And I think people like Gareth were in the corridor going, don't worry about it. Because the running joke was he's always late for his scene. So whatever happens, whether it's the ballet or the cooking scene, he arrives two minutes later dressed for that scene and he's late. And so Gareth's going, don't worry about it. You know, no one alone. He's going, no, I'm going on. I'm going on. At which point, the, the whole, it was a different scene. We'd moved on. Everyone just kind of assumed he wasn't turning up and moved on with it. He then bursts onto the stage. And I think just says something like, hello, am I late? And everyone just sort of looks at him slightly awkwardly. And I don't know who was on, but someone kind of went, yes. And he went, okay, bye. And then left. And came back to the corridor, back to the dressing room, took off his little hat and his gloves, put them on the table and just said to me, no one noticed. (laughs) (laughs) He was so loved, though, by the audience. He was so adored by them. He was. They used to cheer when he went on. And I think, and also by the cast as well, because you really, I think at some point you really felt a bit like a dysfunctional family. Like, there was so much closeness and so much chaos and just so much fun and, don't get me wrong, occasionally stress. You know, so it really, you really bond through chaos and stress. There is something to be said about that, that you did just feel, yeah, a bit like a dysfunctional family. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the, in the uh, three months of preparation and, and the, um, the three weeks of living together, uh, you, you spend more time with these people than you do with your family anyway. Mm. So, uh, Very yeah. true. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> Yeah, and and even after all that, we all came back and did it for more years after that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all returned. You know, coming back, you know, next year for Pinocchio. Um, I mean, it's another one of those stories that's not traditional. So I guess, Dario, what led you to choose it as the next panto? And you know, why has Unbound favoured these kind of atypical stories to adapt into pantomime over the years? Um, I think because they are atypical, um, <laughs> it's it's the field of flowers fewer people have picked. Yeah. So 
those stories just seem more exciting really i having said that we've just announced sleeping beauties this year but um those ones are exciting because you can find a new way of telling them you don't just have to go over the same old version of it but yeah for the most part we we do stories that you wouldn't often associate with pantomime um but i think it gives unbound and queen's park a usp really um mm. and i think it's good for audiences too aylesbury's uh, you know lucky it's got two theaters of very different sizes um and i think by avoiding the types of stories that a big commercial theater would tackle for their pantomime we're giving people the chance to see two shows a year and two completely different shows as well done in very different ways which i think is great for audiences and lots of people that come to see us have also gone to see the big one and they enjoy the fact that they can go and see a huge one with people they've seen off the telly and there's pop songs and there's you know pyrotechnics and huge bits of scenery and it's that sort of spectacle and then you can come to a queen's park one where you feel a lot more involved and a lot more it's a lot more intimate so it's nice to make sure that there is that um that balance in terms of why pinocchio um for a long time in the the queen's park office we had the list which was this document um and it had a long list of show titles which were fairy tales or folk tales or classic children's stories and they were all basically the potential pantomimes and every year we'd go back to the list and look through it and think which one leaps out so pinocchio was on the, i mean all of the ones i've done were on there and pinocchio included um and a bit like alice really i went away i read the book again and there are a couple of images rather than plot lines that stuck out there's toyland um which is in the book um although in the book it's more of a, it's a place where people play games all day and nobody works whereas we did the sort of toys come to life toyland mm. um and then there's another sequence where uh, pinocchio gets sold to a circus and i kind of thought between toyland and circus that's two really strong visuals that you can start a story from and there's a lot of characters you can build on there especially with toys so we had a we had a clockwork soldier and a ballerina and a, a teddy bear and puppets obviously um and it sort of built up from there really um and and then really as with alice you're putting together a plot that can use the basics from the original and then you bring in the characters you expect to see um whether they're the panto archetypes like the dame and the characters like geppetto and the fox and cat can also come in so you're mixing what you expect from a panto and what you expect from the story because again pinocchio is very episodic it is again a, a series of little vignettes rather than a, a long story so it was about finding a, a plot line that ties it all together nice I mean, I guess, you know, we mentioned puppets and bringing everything in together. <laughs> so, Matt, your role was particularly demanding, given the the amount of puppetry involved. It was entirely puppet-based. Can you tell us a bit about the Pinocchio puppet and your kind of experiences bringing him to life? Well, yeah. <laughs> I was actually... Really, Pinocchio wasn't on stage. I think One of the things about most of the... Most of the pantos, I think, is that everyone gets a gets gets a fair crack of time on stage, and it, he only actually enters quite late. But yeah, I've always been interested in puppetry in the same way that I'm interested in things like mime, masks, juggling, object manipulation. It's all about you know the the slightly weirder sides of of, of theatre. Um, but nothing quite prepares you for when you actually have to put this thing on your arm and bring it to life. Um, you know, we've all played with so it's not it's not a sock puppet. You know, 
he's got he's got an arm his his mouth moves differently um i mean i we were quite quite fortunate that there were a couple of cast members who'd been in a production of avenue q previously so i got some very useful but admittedly second-hand advice <laughs> you know, things like you have to move his mouth with your thumb it's not just opening and closing your home, whole hand you're you're specifically opening his lower jaw with with your thumb and little things like because i'm on stage with the puppet on my arm and where i look he has to look and it's not the same as just i turn 45 degrees his head turns 45 degrees we've both got to be looking from slightly different angles so i i started with ping pong balls you know drawing eyes on them and holding them on, on my hand and then set up a camera because you can't do this in the mirror because you've got to have some kind of perspective and be able to see what's going on so yeah many a long evening and if anyone looked in in at me standing in front of my tv with a, with a camera with a couple of ping pong balls on my hand you know looking around from left to right yeah i but you know it's it was it was surprisingly hard work but i think as you get through you know there are there's a, I think there's there's a there's a moment where you feel you've got it. Um, he you know you you start expressing yourself through this other character. You start inhabiting two beings. It's, I mean, I, I I like to think that by the time I by the time we start we we actually went on stage, it was actually profoundly weird when we finally got to the end of it and. I stood up without the puppet. You start feeling a bit naked because you don't have this adorable little little puppet on your on your. your. He he was adorable. He was friendly. He laughed. Um, he was he was quirky. he could be quirky and cheeky. All those things that you know. He was naughty as well. Yeah, he was naughty. You know, <laughs> could, could, you, you, you know I, I'm no I'm no Rod Hull with with an, with an emu. <laughs> but you can get away with so much when it's it's not me, it's him. It's the other guy. I'm 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 just here, I'm just standing here. Yeah, I'm I'm just providing support. <laughs> uh but yeah, it's when you, you when you actually stand up at the end and you go, Wow, that was that was an adventure. And genuinely you come to the end of it and you go, Yeah, I am a I I'm a I'm a human again. I'm a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's 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 a profound. I I I don't know where else I would would have got quite such a unique thing. And obviously the puppet itself was was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I I I sometimes tell the story of where it really arrived was I was on stage um, having an in depth discussion and I completely fluffed the line. And without me interacting with him at all, just Pinocchio turned to the audience, gave a bit of a shrug, turned back to back to Jenny, who was opposite me, and we delivered the line again. It it's it was I wasn't involved in that. Poor Jenny nearly nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> he fell over right there. But yeah, there that's the bit where you go, it's working. It's this is this is really a thing. It's not just me with a with a piece of fabric. It's it's a character. We are we are a character. 
Wow, that's that's quite a journey and a very difficult one by the sounds of it as well. Well, you know, it's if it was easy, everyone would do it, <laughs> as <Yep>. they say. <laughs> Famous words. I mean, speaking of easy, um, Chris, as Geppetto, I mean, how easy, how hard was it for you to to act opposite a puppet? And a puppeteer? To be fair, to start with, it was incredibly hard because I had to get out of the habit of talking to Matt. Uh, because obviously once the puppet was there, I was talking to something in front of Matt. So I had to very quickly sort of get away from and almost talking to his arm he, he went, went through the rehearsals because we didn't actually have the puppet until after a few few weeks of rehearsals, bless them. But um, so, yeah, as Matt was holding his arm out and I was trying to make sure I was in front of him talking to the arm rather than talking to Matt. Um, there was a little bit of... of experience there i mean i didn't have much interaction with it, but we had done it something similar with, with beauty and the beast with an arm puppet so i had sort of seen it in action before how, how that was going to work so that did help a little bit um but as, as time went on it just became quite natural to ignore that and just talk to the puppet which you know just shows the good interaction that was going on between the pair of us i think really and uh, and i think the audience could see that you know, i was talking to the puppet not to, to matt and um and it's, it, yeah, it works well. And say having the same, like Matt says, having seen Avenue Q a few times, you can see how that works. That you have to get ahead of the person, and and react with with the uh, the puppet, and not the puppeteer. Yeah, it is. It is one of the weirdest things to do. You know, I'm six foot one and 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 fairly obvious, <laughs> and having to having to disappear into the background is quite a trick. <laughs> Especially in a bright red costume. Bright red costume <laughs> well, yes. yeah. yeah, I, I, I swear, some somebody, somebody in the costume design had it in for me specifically. <laughs> yeah, my name is Matt Black for a reason. I don't wear colours, and then suddenly I'm on stage in blue, red, and yellow. And I think for weeks. I, that, well, I mean, it was it was much the same. Yeah, you know, somehow when when I, when I was doing Tweedledee for Alice, I, I was dressed in the brightest colours imaginable. <laughs> I mean, actually, Dario, coming in there, I mean, talking about puppetry and stuff like that, what is the thinking there to, because they do it in similar in Avenue Q, to dress the, the puppeteer the same as the puppet? Is it never considered to put the puppeteer in black so they, they uh, blank out, if you like? Yeah, that that is the, the other way of doing it. I think because we knew the ending of the the play would be that the puppet was taken off of Matt's arm and then he stands there in the same costume and it's, I'm a real boy. I think we thought it would have, been a bit too weird to have him in black for some scenes and then the full costume we did it with um actually it was the same with beauty and the beast and i think that was eric had a, a very strong theory that as long as the puppeteering is convincing it doesn't matter what the actor is wearing you will forgive anything but it is an extension of the the puppet is an extension of the character the actor who stood there so they're in the full costume you're just ignoring their face um, and it is incredible how quickly that happens once once uh, the the puppet's there and finished and and the performance is is spot on. I mean, it's still that well, all the puppets have been brilliant, but that Pinocchio one is is another level from John and Angela, the it was, puppet makers. Yes. Um, I mean, it's sort of one of Queen's Park's prized possessions, uh, still up there in the cupboard. He's really <laughs> creepy was... when the box is if if he's in a box. And sometimes when boxes yes. go up and down, occasionally you walk past and you're like, oh, there he is. <laughs> you're like, oh. Yeah. It's... He was on stage again recently, I believe. Yeah. He was. with All, the, was. all the puppets got an airing at the, uh, <laughs> the funny voices. Yeah, there's def- very definitely that, that kind of uncanny valley. And yeah, I mean, even as, as a performer, you know, there's, okay, it's, it's a lump of fabric. 
up until you you kind of put him on you know it's 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 a very weird thing where where something suddenly becomes alive or dead depending on whether it's in a box or not it's schrodinger's character <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's very true <laughs> so i mean those were some real highlights of the kind of puppeteering and and the interactions that you had were there any other really great things that stood out for you during the show um you know any memories like the infamous snow day <laughs> i think playing broccoli i loved playing broccoli <laughs> so much and it was literally it was just one line and um, and also it was just such a good joke it was such a good joke that i got to come on and because i obviously i think it was just sort of like does anyone just want to be the broccoli? And I was like, yes, I want to be the broccoli. And you just come on, you're like, why does nobody love me? And then like <laughs> run off because you get to be like so over the top. Um, but yeah, playing broccoli, loved it. But also on the snow day was the cutest moment I've ever seen in my life was all the kids' wellies and shoes in a line at the front door. Because <laughs> yeah. all those that had actually made it, I think they pretty much all of them took off their wellies at the front door. And there was just this line of tiny kids' shoes <laughs> at the front door. And I just was like, oh. And it was just the cutest thing I've ever seen. And um, yeah, because that, that was cold. Because part of my costume, and it genuinely is, I mean, second favourite costume after Alice's but I love that costume so much but it did require fishnets and it was cold and I remember <laughs> so often I'd just walk up to Darian and be like can I wear my leggings please it's too cold for fishnets <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I have to say with the character when I was cast as Geppetto um, I mean I know we, we don't reference Disney because obviously the legalities of it but Chipetto is recognised as a sort of an old man with lots of beard and hair. So I thought, I'm going to do this. Oh, yeah. So um, for, for three months, I, I, I said, that's it, right, hair growing and, and beard. And I was getting all sorts of comments from people at work as it was getting longer and longer. <laughs> but um, it was so nice to actually sort of be in a, in the real sort of full character mode. I mean, it, it didn't require makeup and stuff to some extent. But the lovely part of it was that as we do this interaction with the audience as they're leaving, I used to go out and just sit at the front because I was the mm. old man, I needed to sit down. And the kids were coming up to me like I was Father Christmas. And it was just so nice there. They, 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 um, you could see them sort of talking to me and I was asking about what they were going to do for Christmas or as it was afterwards or how their Christmas was. And it was almost their, their, their faces were like I was, I was a, another Father Christmas type character. I, mean, I wasn't trying to be, but it was just a lovely interaction with the children who it was and just about to sit there. And um, I, think I, was, I think I was photographed more then then and then and sort of dames and stuff like that but uh no that that was great and as for the snow day i mean i only lived uh a couple of miles from the theater and i, I got a phone call are you going to turn up of course i'm going to turn up more if i have to walk there of course i'm going to turn up and as i did walk there and um it was great that, the audience, that those members of the audience did, did get there and cast were out out clearing the pathway through the car park so um yeah, it was uh, it was all part of the uh, all part of the fun, really, isn't it? It was one of like a really great audience as well because I think we all knew what we'd done to get there, 
and like it just was really lovely and I because I remember I walked but I didn't own any sensible shoes so I had to walk in my boyfriend's <laughs> shoes and he's like a size 14 and I was six and there's a picture of me leaving and I've got like my Christmas hat on and I didn't own a coat so I had my boyfriend's hoodie that went down to my knees and these massive shoes just to waddle my way to the theatre but it was there definitely was a really lovely feeling of that show just because you just yeah it was just really nice <laughs> yeah the show must go on yeah, <laughs> yeah well, embodiment I think, of it yeah because wasn't that one where where you ended up filling in yeah yeah yes. but we lost doherty because he was in he yeah. was in wickham the, wasn't he i think most yeah. most oh, of us right. made it in yes. but cool. i think was... everyone made it i think we got all the dancers and all the cast but matt was in high wickham and relied on public transport and i think there was some discussion about could we try and send a car to get him and then we thought oh, we've got no one to spare so if, if someone goes and gets stuck that means we're two people down mm. so eventually we did have to he was the town crier that year yes um, he was so that was one of lara's many uh <laughs> I mean, that was very last minute. That was, 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 you've got an hour. Yeah, that was, you've got an hour. Like, if you can learn the lines, great. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, Here's a script. (laughs) Matt never did that. I think those were the exact words used, actually. (laughs) The entire cast was stunned when they got the correct cue line. Yeah. And I went in and I, as far as I know, I did all the lines without a script. Um, and yeah, I think there was a surprise that the, the correct lines came through. I it was a much was quicker funny. show. Yeah, it was. A, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> much quicker. Um, I'm wearing a costume that was about four sizes too big for me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like we've all got quite a few stories from various shows. Um, and of course, Pinocchio was the first time that the Unbound Storyteller was seen by the audience. So, Dario, can you tell us a bit about that character's origins and what the hopes are for the storyteller going forward? Yeah, so that was the first time she she was in Pinocchio because um, we needed a, a narrator style character, and um, that that kind of classical image of the fireside storyteller seemed to fit very well uh, with the show, with filling in the backstory about. Uh, Geppetto's wife and how Pinocchio became a, a living puppet so we had it that she's a traveling storyteller who comes in and tells all of the the dancers who are playing the villagers gives them this story about the uh, how Pinocchio came to be and um, so I remember when we were during the production process Elaine our costume designer was designing this coat it was like a patchwork coat for for Joe Wright who played the storyteller on that occasion and I remember her mentioning this idea that she could design a coat that any actor could wear and then take on the role of the storyteller when they wore it. So not for Panto per se, but as a, a figurehead for Unbound in a sense, a sort of literal icon, this image who could pop up anywhere and people would say, oh, it's that's the Unbound storyteller. And um, and I loved the idea and we, we thought it was fantastic, we thought we'll do this, but it was one of those ones that tends to end up on the, the we're going to do that one day pile. And it, it took a while to get off the ground because we were so frantically busy for the next sort of year in 2018 but um we brought the character back played by erica and then gareth um for whiz fest which used to be called the royal dahl festival which happens in aylesbury every year um and that was in 2019 we ran a writing competition and then turned the winning entries into these um sort of jackanory style videos and, and erica and gareth were the narrators so it started gathering pace um and then covid happened <laughs> 
So that, <laughs> that put it on hold again. Yep. Um, so that was another sort of six months later. Then we finally got around. Weirdly, actually, COVID gave us the chance to work on it and, and build up to doing it. So weirdly, COVID was the making of that project. Um, and we finally launched it this year. So we've, um, we're, we're kind of building on the fact that we have three different actors playing the storyteller in these two different projects. The whole idea is that anyone could be an unbound storyteller and they can go out to uh, the community. They could go to different venues uh, or live events that we go to representing Queen's Park and Unbound and can tell stories, whether that's stuff that's been commissioned specifically for a, a themed event or just going out with our big book of stories and offering people which one do you want to hear or in the case of Wizfiz Fest this year, improvising completely new ones and uh, and chatting to to members of the public. So it's it's lovely because it really celebrates that fireside tradition of stories that are told time and time again, but never the same way twice. And um, the fantastic thing is that we've got this whole community of actors now who are kind of ready and raring to go as storytellers. And we've got the opportunity to train up new people as well. So it's becoming a, a little bit of a legacy project really for Unbound. It's this long-term thing to have a group of actors, a group of performers who are the storytellers who can go out to any venue, any event, wherever they're needed and are a sort of recognisable symbol of storytelling that links back to Queen's Park. So yeah, high hopes for it. And we've got lots of stuff planned for this summer, different events we're going out to and uh, and training programme starts in the autumn. So hopefully there'll be more more storytellers by the end of the year. And uh, yeah, exciting times ahead. Wow, that really sounds like the embodiment of tell great stories, really. Kind of walking motto. Well, I think we're sort of coming towards the end now, but every panto ends on a song, of course. So... What is your favourite song from Unbound's Pantomimes? That's a question to everyone. I think the fact the lobster quadrille still gets stuck in my head says that something. That was a good one. Like, yeah. That was the one that, as we were learning it, I'd be walking down the corridor just going... And one of the kids would be like, Miss! And I'm like, I can't help it. It's there. And you kind of, like, all the other panto songs, I remember how much they get stuck in your head. And then eventually they'll go, but Lobster Quadrille, I still catch myself now while I'm staring at tea, and I'm like, this just never leaves. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my favourites to um to pitch, because obviously the, the lyrics are in the book of Alice in Wonderland, mm. um, of the Lobster Quadrille. It's the Mock Turtle song, I think it's called. And um, we were always looking for different things that the dancers could do. And we thought, oh, tap dancing is one we haven't really done before. And I was reading through eyes and I thought, tap dancing lobsters, that's that's genius. And I remember <laughs> pitching that to the dance school and the principal looking at me as if I had finally gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really good. They had castanets. They were brilliant. <laughs> I guess for me, it would probably be the uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, our, um, our, our Les Mis tribute, if you like. <laughs> I, mean, I can't remember exactly what the song was called, Daniel, what the title was. but um... Oh, it's called The Last Day or something, I think. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? But it, it was pretty much a sort of Les Mis uh, uh, um, barricade moment. We had uh, people coming on, seeing the individual lines, we had a flag waving at the back, and it was <laughs> it, it was all, all for Erica, really. But um, it, yeah, it was just a lovely sort of moment as we all sort of collectively came and produced this big crescendo of noise at the end of the song. So, um, But yeah, it, it, it was fun to be in. Yeah, I I have to say I'd I'd love I'd love to say that the 
my favourite song was the one I did as Merlin, but I hated oh, that because I could never get <laughs> I could never get all the words in because yeah, a, a, a cinch a pinch a, a, a mm. dish of this a, and I remember being shouted at by a director because <laughs> I've been working at it for weeks. But yeah, to be honest, you know, very few people have ever accused me of being egotistical. But my favourite panto song from from. Uh, any of the Unbound productions is actually Song of the Seasons from the Snow Queen. Yeah, yeah. that's my favourite too. Which yeah. I, which I had the had the privilege of of actually composing the music for, and mostly it's because it's a very very simple song, stripped it right back, and it does exactly what it needs to do at exactly the right time in the production, and it's. Just it just just creates a wonderful piece of atmosphere, and it's incredibly simple. And you know, I'm like I say, I know I know I wrote it, but it's still one of my favourite pieces that I've ever written. Yeah, it is. That's the one I still. That's the one I have in my head still. I still find myself humming that one because I think it is a <laughs> beautiful melody. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is one. It is one of the very few times because I end up writing the lyrics for Panto, which is a bit scary because I'm not a lyricist. Um, and I'm always slightly um, shocked and appalled when I hear the songs and find out that the composers have actually used my lyrics instead of changing them. <laughs> so I always write on the front of the front of the script, just change what you need to. It's just a guideline. And then they use them, and I go, "Oh no, that's dreadful." Um, having said that, again, not to uh, end on backstabbing, but that is the one I'm really proud of as a set of lyrics, because mm. um, it sort of it sums the show up really well. Um, but yeah, and it was. Yeah, it was a really, it was a very sweet note to end, to end on. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you all for your thoughts and memories, and thank you to everyone for listening in. For more episodes of Tell Great Stories and lots of other great audio and video content, head over to unboundtheatre.co.uk or look up at Unbound Theatre on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or SoundCloud. 